This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Gabby, you're calling the kids. Let's go. All right, that looks great, Gabby. Let's make those legs longer. So, Gene, how's it going with the kids? Uh, you do not uh, feel like training. Come here. What's your plan? Okay, I'll be on in a minute. Let's go. You want to train with me? Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Brewer has not only a neuroscientist, he's also a psychiatrist. His book is called Unwinding Anxiety. He even created an app, which is an unwinding anxiety app. And in this day and age, you know, I know a lot of people are feeling anxious. There's sort of these unknown elements. And a lot of it is because we're looking for something that's predictable. And, you know, when that is not the case, it does, can, it can create anxiety. He's also dealt with smokers and overeating and other types of addiction. And what I love about this conversation, it's all about if we can shift the perspective. That's the hardest thing, right? We're all walking around with our filters and our past experiences sort of forming forming in the narrative going forward. And something that Dr. Burr talks a lot about is when we can look at things not with this anxiety filter or anger or fear filter, but in fact, curiosity. You know, some people will you know, talk about that as, you know, you're either observing or you are looking at things with inquiry, whatever words it is, it's this idea of like, well, why is it that happening that way? Or why is this person acting like that? Why am I feeling this way? And the other really important thing for me about Dr. Burr or Judson in this case is that this is a person who's living it. When you see him, you know, there's this sort of overall feeling of vitality and health. So he's practicing this, but there is an actual look of curiosity in his eyes where it's like, well, why do we do the things that we do? And I, I learned a lot and I hope you do too. And it brings value to your day and that you enjoy the conversation. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, I, first of all, thank you. You are the first person um, as you can tell, my ha- my house is very sparse. We just moved in here. You live in Massachusetts. You drove from the other side of the island. And um, island living is 
when you live on an island, you're like, oh, I have to go to town. It's like 40 minutes away, right? And, you know, living, I live in Los Angeles part of the time, and you, you hit 40 minutes like it's nothing normally. So I really appreciate you coming all this way from the other side of the island. You're a south sider. You have to know, like, you know, we're north siders. We're not deep country, but, you know, we're on the north shore. Um, why did you, you're a surfer, is this right? Yeah, aspiring. Well, we're all, everyone's aspiring to be a surfer. Right. I don't know that you land on surfing. No, and that's one of the beautiful things about surfing is you're you're <laughs> you're always learning, you're always growing. How did you I mean, you've had to learn are you a cold water guy only? Like is that where you've actually got cuz that's a hard way to learn. I've only been surfing a couple of years and it was when I went to Brown, one of my friends said, "Hey, if you come to Brown, I'll teach you how to surf." So this is I've only been surfing a couple of years and he didn't tell me how cold the water was. Yeah, I hope you have a good wetsuit. I I do. I've several now. Uh, but learning in the cold water and then also, you know, surfing the winter when nobody else is out in the water and it's just like clean waves is pretty nice. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. I would see my brain was like, "Oh, it's lonely and antisocial, but I would imagine for surfers that's actually the reason I don't surf is cuz it's so aggressive. And Laird used to joke with me and he'd say, Gabby, you actually have to come in to where the waves break to catch them. Cause I'd be like deep in the channel, you know? And I was like, I just don't want to get enough beef with anybody or take people out. So I want to start with, you know, when you, when you do your homework and read about people like you that know so much about neuroscience and the brain and, um, you know, psychiatrics and all of this, I wonder what in your young life, so you have three siblings, is that right? I do. Okay, so your mom was the one who raised you. Mm-hmm. So what did you have like a something that happened that you sort of thought I really want to understand that better or the way that works or what kind of prompted you into this path? Well, I was always a curious kid, and I think the fact that my mom was raising four kids by herself and was off, you know, trying to keep us fed. Uh, left us to our own devices a lot, and so I would get into all sorts of messes. Where's your birth rate, what, birth order? Two. Oh, okay, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, and it's <laughs> better than number choice. four of like you know you're str- holding on for dear life. So you were all, you had a lot of independence. I did a huge amount, and so we would get into all sorts of trouble and be learning along the way. You know, I I think as a kid I I had this rabid curiosity where I would you know tear apart all my toys to figure out how they worked. And not realize that it's easier to pull them apart than put them back together. Yeah. Um, but that was something that I've, I think I've had my whole life. And wait, did I, am I getting this right? Your mom went back to school mm-hmm. and became an attorney or a lawyer? She did to, uh, to support us. Yeah. She actually started as an aerobics instructor when she, when my parents first got divorced. <laughs> What well, was to get back in shape for dating or to pay the bill? To I'm totally joking. I'm totally joking. <laughs> to pay the bill. Yeah, I love when people break up and they both get look really amazing. <laughs> I call that trauma trim. Trauma trim. Yeah. That's great. No, but she was teaching aerobics. She was teaching aerobics, going back to school, um, became a patent agent and then a patent attorney, did all of this stuff while we were all uh, trying to stay out of trouble and stay in school ourselves. Okay, so you talk a lot and, and I want to talk about the habits and, you know, certain loops. You, you talk a lot about anxiety and mindfulness and, and the, and the using curiosity to help, um, either, you know, minimize the impact of anxiety or reduce anxiety, or even eventually get out of anxiety. Maybe we can start with just some really basic things about how the brain works, Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, it's interesting having, I have three daughters and even being, you know, married to somebody like Laird, where you, you really have to 
kind of remember at certain times in their lives, not Laird, but the girls, like, oh, that part of their brain isn't even fully developed. So it, it's really like 25, isn't that right? Yeah, the pruning happens in our prefrontal cortex. All this this reorganization piece is happening a lot during teenage years up into early adulthood. Did you call it pruning? Yeah, where we're pruning. Amazing. <laughs> where, you know, we have all these connections and our brain has to figure out which ones are the ones to keep and which ones to get rid of. Uh, and that happens for years and years, you know, at least into our early 20s. But I would say, you know, that's constantly happening through our entire lives. That's how we learn. That's how we lay down memory. I think people also think like, oh, as we get older, it declines. And then you hear, you know, you start adding more responsibility, whether it's work or family. And then people think, oh, my file cabinet's full. But the truth of the matter is we can build, you know, new neuroreceptors our whole life. But that there is a natural decline, like that just happens with age, but there's things we can do, whether it's exercise and eating and all these other things that you and I are going to talk about um, to kind of keep those high functioning. Yes. Yes. And I would say, you know, often we either get into the, the ruts or follow society around, you know, my cabinet is full, but this is something, you know, we can keep our curiosity, our childhood curiosity, our entire lives. And that's, I think that's what keeps things interesting. Yeah, you do. You have a little look in your face like a troublemaker. I can see it. Do you think, do you ever, and if this is too personal, do you think, are you, do you think you'll ever choose to have children? Probably not. Uh. (laughs) See, these are really smart people. (laughs) I, I know so many people that are really smart and they know a lot. And I'm like, how come we don't have kids? You don't want to get your ass kicked. You don't want to groove that domestic groove. Like, what is it? I, there are probably a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> but. No, but I'm just, no, because there's a surrendering. That's what I'm saying. Cause when people listen to this, let's say we have, whether it's a nine to five job and a family, which is great. There's a le- there is still a level of grooving that goes on for a certain period of time when you're in those patterns that, you know, it does make certain things harder. It makes it more of a challenge. Absolutely. And I've, I've heard so many wonderful stories from friends about, you know, their kids being their teachers. And so, yeah, I've got a few, maybe I'm just not ready for that, that level of teaching yet. I don't know. Smart though. You're scared. You're chicken. I like it. (laughs) Chicken or smart. They go like this. No, but it is true. Like where they, you, especially you think, Oh, I'm going to do all these right things and I'm going to, and that'll take care of certain things. And you, they forget to remind you that the people that you are raising have their own path and journey. And it's, um, it's, so it can be surprising. I'm sure it can be. Yeah. Yeah. But you can help the rest of us in the meantime. Well, and that's one thing that has really driven my wife and myself, you know, we're both, um, academics, avid learners. And one thing that I've found very fulfilling is just this continual, continual process, not only of learning, but also of being of service yeah. to the world. And I feel like one way that I can be of best service is to be doing what I'm doing, you know, research, my clinic, uh, yeah. teaching and things like that. And I think it's a huge responsibility to take care of children. You know, you know this is really important, though, because there's people sometimes that feel like, oh, what the world tells us how we're supposed to be. And. The reality is, it's like, I feel like when, if you find your mission, you know, with or without kids, but this is really important is that to contribute that much of your time and intellect, both you and your wife to helping other people also understand that maybe wouldn't have the time to get so deep into these topics and to the science. Um, it might be harder to do with a family. I'm sure it would be a trade-off in that sense. And I have to say, 
I found nothing for myself personally more rewarding yeah. than being of service and yeah. helping. And I think that's, I think it's really good for other people to hear that because I think it can be a conflict where they go, I don't know that I want to go down that route. That seems like the one we're quote supposed to, I want to follow this. And I think it's important for people to always feel like they have that option. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's get into the brain. And we were, you, you mentioned you were talking about the frontal cortex and the joke about like, it's the first one to bail when you get stressed out. Mm-hmm. So maybe, cause a lot of people feel stress and anxiety. And I know there's conversation that it, with the addition of technology and maybe you, you know, you could really explain why that is that people, young people, you met my daughter who's 13. That's my youngest. If, is that true that people are feeling more stressed out and more anxious? And if it is, you know, what do you think some of the factors are? Because it's so easy to go, Oh, the computer, Oh, social media. But sometimes I, I don't, I'm like, well, what is it really? I think there are some, some clear factors that are contributing. And if we just look at the data, it's one thing I like to do as a scientist, just in 2020, for example, the uh, screening and diagnostic screening for anxiety disorders, you know, people screened positive. Uh, I think the increase rate was 287% and psychological distress has gone up 250%. So it's kind of like, you know, with the, with the COVID-19 thing, mm-hmm. we had a natural experiment that said, okay, you know, what is anxiety all about? And it really confirms what we've been, you know, what science has been suggesting, which is that there's this, you know, uncertainty drives our brain to help us survive. So with uncertainty, our brain is looking, it says, it gets us off our butt to go get information, right? And when there isn't information, then we start to freak out because our brain is trying to predict the future based on the past. And if it doesn't have enough information to do accurate predictions, it starts predicting everything. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? So you can think of as this is our our basic survival mechanism. So fear helps us learn, helps us survive. You know, you step out in the street, you realize you hadn't you didn't seen the car, you jump back onto the safety of the sidewalk, and you learn, oh, I probably should look both ways before crossing the street. So fear helps us survive. Uncertainty helps us survive. Uncertainty is always here. It's always going to be here. And so when there's uncertainty, our brain, it uses that impetus, that drive to go get information. It's just like food for our brain. And so both of those are helpful. But when there's not enough certainty, when we can't get that information, our, our brain goes into hyperdrive. And, you know, it's like being in first gear and burning out the engine where we you know, swing into anxiety. So you can think of fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. Both of those by themselves are good survival mechanisms, but how we work with that uncertainty, how we work with the fear can either drive us over the edge into anxiety or actually help us see, Oh, here's a new situation. What can I learn from this? Do you think like, so that when I grew up, you know, there was also a lot less conversation around it. You know, people, I, I hate to say it, but like they kept it more to themselves or maybe you talk to one close friend about it. You know, you wonder sometimes if also people being a human is, is complicated and you go up and day and down and, and there are plenty of days I get, a, I, I go, I'm in bed and I think I'm not really ready to face the day. Not really, but I'm, I will. And I don't, I don't, my first go-to isn't, oh, I'm anxious or I'm depressed. It's like, Hey, this is one of the moments in the cycle where, um, I'm not feeling my best. And so I, I sometimes think, and, and like I said, I have three daughters. We're a lot more informed, which is awesome for people who really are anxious and depressed. But I also think at times it feels that people just, 
you know, quickly go, oh, I'm, well, I must be depressed. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, no, we're humans. Like, and part of being human, it's like, you're looking outside my window. It's sometimes it's sunny and sometimes it's raining. And I do think things are cyclical. So I, 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 I sometimes feel like we have so much information and it's great, but it makes everybody just go down the hole instead of thinking, all right, let me see if I drop, get into my day a little bit. Maybe I can, it can get a little better or I can make it better. Yeah. I don't know if you guys see that at all, but. Well, there's a, a condition. What's it called? The human condition? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're highlighting something really important, which is having access to a bunch of information isn't always the best thing. So if we wake up in the morning, and I see this with a lot of patients in my clinic, they wake up, they're anxious, and their brain says, oh no, why am I anxious? Yeah. And then they go to their weapon of mass distraction. You know, they pick up their phone and they start trying to figure out what's wrong. Self-diagnose. Right. As compared to, oh, well, I don't feel great. Let me see if this, you know, if this will pass. If they explore, you know, sit with it for a little bit, it helps mm -hmm. them develop distress tolerance. Whereas if we turn to something to make us feel better and either, you know, spend all our time going down rabbit holes or distracting ourselves on social media or whatever, mm -hmm. then we don't actually learn that distress tolerance. And you talk about curiosity a lot. And I really want you to expand on that. And I even think in those moments, because, you know, there's, you, uh, you work with people who are trying to quit smoking, you're, t you work with people who have like, you know, very specific things, but what you talk about for me in a day in and day out way of the human condition of, Hey, I feel stressed out. I'm worried about the bills. Um, been dealing with COVID aging relationships, uh, parenting, is, is, is truly such an unknown that if anyone's like, Oh, I have this dialed and figured out, I'm so scared. Like, I'm like, I can't wait to see what that's going to look like in 10 years. But this inquiry, this self inquiry that you talk about, this curiosity, I think it can be helpful because it's also, um, it's also a little kinder mm -hmm. to ourselves. You're not sitting there going, what's wrong with me? Right. It's like, Oh, Okay. <laughs> I'm having one of those moments. Well, I wonder what's going on because sometimes too, just that moment of asking myself, you might go, you know, I had that conversation with that person and maybe it didn't go as I wanted it to, or maybe something's going on with my partner. So I, maybe we should uncover, unearth a couple things. We've had a weird couple, two weeks or something. And, and so you use the idea of instead of getting anxious, getting curious, well, that comes from a serendipity, actually, where I have, I've been studying how to change, you know, break bad habits for a long time. You know, we've done work with smoking, like you mentioned, uh, where we've gotten really nice results, like five tons of crit rates and gold standard treatment, where we're like, whoa, this, is, this works pretty well. How does it work? Someone comes in, they said, I've tried 75 times to quit smoking. Once I'm triggered, I'm down, I'm in, I'm outside the building, you know, whatever. How does it work? The way that it, well, this actually goes back to uh, some, some of the basic neuroscience that a lot of people have overlooked. So there's this whole ideology around just willpower, you know, just grit, just force yourself to quit, quit cold, cold turkey. It's going to be rough, but you're going to make it through it. Uh, some people can quit smoking that way and some people can stop overeating, you know, all these, all these different habits, but it actually doesn't work that well. This is why uh, it's called yo-yo dieting when people try to calorie restrict or why people, you know, on average, it takes them five to six times to quit smoking. So we took a very different approach, which was to 
ask this question, like, well, how's the brain actually work? <laughs> you know? And it seems crazy, but nobody else really approached smoking this way. And I, this actually came from my, I've been meditating since the beginning of medical school and I was learning how my own mind worked. And some of the ancient Buddhist psychology was talking about, there's this weird phrase, like exploring gratification to its end. And I was trying to figure out what the heck does that mean? Explore gratification to its end. And when I started linking that up with modern day psychology, it made a whole lot of sense, which is we learn to form habits based on how rewarding a behavior is. Okay. Mm. And if that behavior continues to be rewarding, it's going to be really hard to break it. So if we can focus in on how rewarding a behavior is, that's the key to changing either breaking a bad habit or even forming a, a new one. So instead of telling people to stop smoking, you know, do you ever, do you remember Bob Newhart, this guy? Oh yeah. I love that show. So he, he had this great skit called Just Stop It. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, it, you know, it's five minutes. This woman walks into the therapist's office and she says, I have this problem. And he leans over his desk and says, just stop it. You know, and she, she says, okay, what about this? And he says, just stop it. You know, and that's the whole skit. Yeah. So that's basically what I learned in residency in a nutshell. You know, you want to make sure you're eating salad instead of cake. Make sure you stop smoking and all that. So that's really based on the behavior, not looking at the reward or how rewarding a behavior is. So instead of saying, just stop it, I say, go ahead and smoke. <laughs> and they look at me like, is this, you know, is this, is this an experiment? What's going on? And I say, well, go ahead and smoke, but pay attention as you smoke. Right. And what they realize is that smoking tastes like crap, right? I've never had a patient come into my office and say, doc, thank you. I never realized how great a cigarettes. Wait, they never noticed that really before. It's because they were just in the feeling of it. They were in. So either it's, it's relieving that dopamine deficit where they've become physiologically addicted and their brain is saying, give me that dopamine. I don't care, care how bad it is. Just give it to me. And so they'll just ignore this, uh, smoke, this smell of a cigarette or whatever. Or also the reward often starts uh, in teenager years. So on average, folks in my studies, they started smoking at the age of 13, right? And so the reward there was being rebellious, cool at school, I was gonna say cool, yeah. yeah, all these things. And so, of course, they're, they're going to they're gonna ignore the part that they just threw up the first time they smoked a cigarette because nicotine's actually a toxin. You know, they're going to ignore the, all the, the bad breath, all this stuff, because they're cool. <laughs> right. They want to be cool. So that reward outweighs the negative effects of the smoking. Well, when somebody's been smoking for a long time and they, they start to realize, you know, this is not good for my health, whatever, that's the time where I can say, okay, really pay attention in this moment. What's, you know, and... Do you give them cues besides other than like pay attention? Like, do you say, do you get, do you sort of get them to focus on like, we'll notice, I don't know, like how your hands smell or I don't know, I'm making it up. But. I, I specifically have them say, okay, what's it taste like? What's it feel like as it goes into your lungs? Because it's superheated smoke, right? Yeah. What's it smell like as it comes out of your, out of your mouth or your nose? What do your clothes smell like? What does your breath smell like? All that. So they really focus on the direct in the moment experience. And my lab's actually done studies with this where we can embed these tools and give people checklists to actually help them pay attention as they smoke. Uh, so we have this craving and quit app that, that helps people quit. And we use that as a way to re measure the reward value as, you know, in their brain, basically, right. as they are um, going through this process. And it takes... You know, we do this with smoking. We do this with eating, with eat overeating. It takes 10 to 15 times of somebody just really carefully paying attention to what it's like when they overeat for that reward value to drop below the reward value of not overeating. So their behavior actually shifts from overeating to not overeating. So it doesn't take a long time. It just takes some really careful uh, paying attention as they're doing it. Both, you know, this works both for eating. It works for smoking as well. Is smoking... 
So smoking, having nicotine, being addictive, and then I know food has elements of addiction, but sometimes food is connected, obviously, also to, you know, certain traumas when you have, like, intense overeating. Um, Do you think just even, well, do you think, you've done studies, have you seen that um, in the overeating part, if let's say someone is overeating because of a, some kind of r- significant trauma, um, that uh, even being curious that way and being mindful, it can minimize them using it. It also slows it down. So I would imagine yes. if they're using it to self-soothe or, um, you know, kind of deal with something that maybe even slowing it down just kind of maybe slows it all down. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Okay. When we were first developing our, our mindful eating app, uh, this Eat Right Now app, we I was pilot testing it with folks in my clinic. And I had a, a young woman who had been eating disorder. She was referred to me for that. And what she described, both her parents survived the the Khmer Rouge genocide. Oh, yeah. So they can't even say it because it's such a, you know, like that was a major trauma for both her parents. And her mom started kind of emotionally, let's say emotionally abusing her at about the age of eight. And what my patient described was that the way that she coped with those negative emotions, because you know you want your mom to be supportive all the time, right? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen. I was, gonna say, I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> so she started eating and she said that it would help her numb herself from those negative emotions. By the time she came to see me, this is about 20 years later, she had reinforced this process to the point where she was binge eating entire large pizzas in one sitting 20 out of 30 days a month. And the first step there was to help her start to see what she was actually getting from the binging because the binging was the only mechanism that her brain knew to help her cope, to soothe herself. You know, it's like when something's unpleasant, our brain says, let's do something to make this go away. And if we numb ourselves through food, you know, this, anybody that's overeaten at, at a Thanksgiving meal or whatever knows what that's like. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's a temporary relief, yet it doesn't fix the problem and it can make things work. She was, you know, she was pretty overweight and she was also judging herself for her, you know, how she looked and how, and yeah. just that she didn't. Well, shame control. is, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of shame there. So the key for her, you know, the first thing we did was help her kind of see this habit loop where, you know, her negative emotions would trigger her to binge and that binge would give her that brief relief with that numbing. And just seeing that process was really helpful for her. I wrote a bit about her in in my Unwinding Anxiety book that really highlights, you know, how it was not just that, but she also had a self-judgmental habit loop. And you were talking, you know, so this gets back to this kindness piece where, if she can, she started mapping out these aspects of her experience where that, you know, she was, she was having a lot of shame. She would beat herself up over mm. the fact that she couldn't control her behavior. So what we helped her do was see just how unrewarding the self-judgment was, mm. you know, just by simply asking, what am I getting from this? And that helped her see that, oh, beating myself up doesn't actually fix things. And it can actually trigger another binge because there's that negative emotion. And then we could bring in what I call the, the BBO, the bigger, better offer, mm-hmm. where it's, you know our brain's going to look for something that's more rewarding. So if beating ourselves up, we can see that it's not rewarding, then it opens the door for something that's more rewarding. And self-kindness beats the pants off of beating ourselves up. So we trained her to practice some this meditation, this loving kindness practice, where she was just simply bringing kindness to herself. And of course, that feels so much better 
than beating herself up, that she could flip that old habit into this new one. So not only was she able to step out of that, you know, that binge eating pattern, but she could also step back into a pattern that she probably, I'm going to guess, hadn't had since childhood where she could actually be okay with herself, you know, mm-hmm. and, and love herself, which she was really unfamiliar with uh, after all those years of beating herself up. I think it's okay. Real. I'm just, there's been a conversation in our house for a lot of years and I'm just really curious and you're the best person to ask because you have a meditation practice Mm -hmm. and you're a scientist smoking, Mm -hmm. you're inhaling and you're exhaling. And I know they're getting ahead and they're getting dopamine, but don't you also think that the fact that they're taking a few deep breaths also downregulates them? I love that you point that out because one thing I have some of my patients do, especially if they're not interested in mindfulness or meditation, I have them cut a a straw, a drinking straw into the size of a cigarette and put it in their cigarette pack. Because when you smoke a cigarette, there's a resistance that you have to, you really have to inhale. Well, with this, with a straw, there's no resistance. So if they really, if they have that oral fixation or they, if they have that habit, they can pull out a straw and they can actually take a deep breath. Yeah. And it feels so much better than actually, you know, trying to inhale a cigarette. That's a great way for some people to just realize, oh, I went out on a smoke break, not because I really needed a cigarette. Let's say if they weren't super physiologically addicted, but I actually just needed a break and a couple of deep breaths was really what I needed there. Yeah. So I okay. think you were, you were on that. Well, Laird and I have talked about it. He goes, look at smoking. His mom was a smoker yeah. and uh, very, really like energetic and, Um, and then when we started really becoming more informed about breathing and all that, and he goes, well, think about cigarettes. I mean, you're taking some deep breaths, a cigarette break is a breathing break amongst other things, but it's pretty interesting. It's funny how, um, and it's so simple, but yet why it's so hard is an aware, an awareness to something, to anything, to one of our behaviors, to our reactions, to what we're really responding to. It's like, I, I think it's such a such an interesting thing how so much of things in life is having the awareness and uh once you get it it's like oh it seems so simple but before that you're upside down and really confused i know it's It's crazy isn't it you know i had no idea how my own mind worked all the way up through college i was taking the grit you know will willpower based methodology which actually led to my own anxiety catching up with me i was having physical gi symptoms where i thought I did a bunch of backpacking, so I thought I had giardiasis, I had this intestinal infection. And in fact, the doctor was like, could you be stressed? I was like, no, no, I'm not stressed. I run, I'm a vegetarian, I, you know, I play violin. And he's like, okay. You know? Interesting. Yeah, and it turned out I had to actually realize when he gave me the antibiotic that didn't work yeah. right? because it wasn't the issue that this was actually stress. And that was the beginning of me starting to see, wait a minute, I really need to see this mind-body connection a little more clearly. That's actually what propelled me into studying the stress immune interaction during graduate school, because I really wanted to understand that. And then that evolved into me wanting to really focus everything on studying how the mind works and mindfulness after, you know, after graduate school. And in this, you know, in this time of, of distraction, and the impulse, right? Like you're talking about the phone and I, I see it in myself and even having awareness, like I'll be like sitting quietly for a moment and you think, Oh, you really are, would like to reach for a phone because it's an idle distraction. That is that some kind of biological hardwiring too? It is. It is. So with boredom, there's this, well, you can tell me, is there a feeling of restlessness that comes with boredom? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's what they've described certainly is the case for me. Yeah. So that restless quality is that urge in our body saying, do something. And when we've, when our, when our phones, cause we haven't really trained ourselves, our phones have trained us to, you know, to look at them. So with all the, you know, it's novelty, it's distraction, it's just soothing. You know, somebody was describing that she just liked to uh, go on her, on Instagram because there were pretty pictures and she didn't need to read text. And it was just, Oh, you know, like this self-soothing thing, anything that's rewarding like that, that is at our fingertips, that is readily available is going to be very easy to get addicted to. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I train hard and I've trained hard for a long time and do this stuff, but I know deep inside I'm inherently lazy Fully. Like if you said, Hey Gab, if you, no, I'm, I'm like, I notice it. I think I live with somebody who actually is not lazy. So I really know the difference. It is a real difference of somebody you live with that is like, no, I'm going to move. Like I, I, I'm, this is, what do you mean? You're going to like sit around, you know? And so it's an interesting thing when you just start to learn some more things about what is really natural when you're talking about, you know, to have these impulses, you know, in nature and for biology to keep us alive, that they're great. But then, all right, what do you want to do about it? So someone comes in to see you and they go, I've been feeling anxious. How does that show up? So there are a number of things that can help people see if they're feeling anxious or not, because it can hide in different things. Mm -hmm. So I like going back to the simple definition of anxiety, which is this feeling of nervousness, of worry, of unease, you know, typically about something with an uncertain outcome. And that worry piece is really interesting because worry can be a felt sensation. I feel worried, but it can also be a verb. I'm worrying, you know, I worry about something. And so I have folks pay attention to their bodies, you know, is, and one of the telltale signs of things like anxiety, and it's not just anxiety, but this is one thing that is generally there with anxiety is this feeling of contraction of, of wound upness. You know, that's why I entitled my book, Unwinding Anxiety, because we feel really wound up mm-hmm. when we're anxious. So just looking to see, you know, am I wound up? Are my shoulders tight? Is my jaw tight? Are my eyes kind of narrow? The eyes are really, they're, you know, people say they're a window into the soul. I'll say at least they're a window into our emotions. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> because we, we associate even eye, eye positioning, eye posture with different emotions. So for example, if we're really anxious, if we're really frustrated or angry or eyes tend to be narrow. Yeah. And if we're really curious, our eyes tend to be wide. That's why they call it wide eyed wonder. Yeah. Think right? about children, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah it's true. Just like, oh. Yeah. You can, they could stare at a blade of grass for three hours and they're, they're fascinated. You know, it's truly, it's, you know, truly interesting. So here focusing on, you know, what our body is feeling, focusing on what our body is doing because it's associated certain postures with emotions is a good place to start. And the other place is to look to see what's our mind doing. Is my mind worrying about something? I'll give you an example. You know, I had a patient who came in who was referred for anxiety. And the first thing we did was we you know, took his history and we mapped out what it was that was driving his anxiety. And I say, I say driving, but this is actually related to his own driving. Oh. So he would drive on the highway. He would get these thoughts in his head like, oh, no, I'm going to get in an accident. So he'd start to worry about getting in an accident. And that would lead him, that was uncomfortable. So his brain says, do something. So he stopped driving on the highway because he didn't want to get panic attacks. He didn't want to get in an accident. And that behavior was actually helping him alleviate that, that concern, the worry. 
and also avoid those thoughts because he wasn't on the highway. So, you know, he was, we just mapped out his own habit loop, you know, his, his thoughts, this avoiding behavior, and then what the reward was for his brain, which was to avoid all of these things. But it helped him see not only, you know, the feeling of anxiety, but mm-hmm. he, he knew that relatively well. He'd had it for about 30 years. But the, these worry thoughts could actually drive the process itself. This is actually what fascinated me. I had never learned in residency that worry could drive anxiety like any other habit. And it was only when I was struggling to help my own patients with their anxiety. You know, medications, you get about a hit rate of about 20%, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, they're not great for everybody. About 20% people of people do well with them. So I started you know, looking at the literature. And back at the 80s, people were actually suggesting this. I'd never learned this in residency. And so I said, well, I know something about habits. Let's see if we can approach anxiety from that habit perspective. And, of course, as a researcher, I wanted, you know, we developed an app that we could study. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found we got huge results. We got like this 57% reduction in anxiety in anxious physicians. We got a 67% reduction in anxiety in people with generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. So taking this principle, you know, from my clinic, whereas, you know, I could help a patient just kind of understand how their mind worked. And even that was helpful to testing to see, could we target that and get big results? That's actually pretty gratifying to see all of that um, come to fruition. We're going to do a quick thank you to one of our sponsors and get right back to the show. Talking about Laird Superfood is probably one of the easiest ads I can do because I watched my husband drink coffee for 20-something years, and then in 2015, um, he and a friend of ours created, by accident, a vegan plant-based coffee and creamer business, and now we've got tons of other products. We have hydrate products and greens and plant-based protein that doesn't upset your stomach. Imagine that. The taste is amazing. Trust me. I did all the taste tests in room temperature water so we know how good this stuff is. We've got cacao creamer, one of my personal favorites. If you're trying to avoid sugar, unsweetened creamers. Remember, everything is vegan. It's plant-based, easy to use. And so if you want to get a discount today, and try Laird Superfood, all you do is go to LairdSuperfood.com. That's L-A-I-R-D-S-U-P-E-R-F-O-O-D.com, LairdSuperfood.com. And if you punch in Gabby2021 at checkout, you will receive a 20% savings. This product is something that I use pretty much every day in my coffee. We even have matcha. So let's say you're not a coffee drinker. You like chai, you like matcha. We really tried to bring you the best tasting with the highest quality ingredients, no artificial flavorings, um, and at the most reasonable price that we could. So if you've been wondering about Laird Superfood or you want to stock up on Laird Superfood, go ahead and head to LairdSuperfood.com and get your savings with discount code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, 2021. How do you, so tell me about the app and how it works and how someone can utilize that as a tool because obviously not everyone's going to get to see you in Massachusetts or come to your uh, clinic. How does it work? The, so the Unwinding Anxiety app uh, is laid out in a similar manner, actually, uh, to the, the book, which, mm-hmm. which is the same name. And the idea is the first step is just to map out the habit loop. So what I've done is put together 30 core modules. They're about 10 minutes a day. It's videos, it's animations, it's in-the-moment exercises 
that starts with just helping people understand how their minds work so they can then start to work with their minds. So we don't actually start with, hey, why don't you meditate? We say, hey, mm. why don't we teach you how your mind works yeah. and how your brain works? And that's a, you know, that's a really good place to start. So it starts there and then it helps people start to explore, well, what am I getting from worrying? You know, for example, let's say parents of teenagers, yeah. just, you know, yeah. for example, yeah. uh, if they're, if the kids get old enough and they get to go out, you know, they start going out with friends. Oh, and they're driving and stuff. It's yes. awesome. Yeah. So parents, I, I hear that they don't sleep as well when their kids are out at night driving, right? Now, often what parents do is they'll worry about their kids. Well, the worry, I can almost promise you, doesn't keep the kids safe but it gives the parents something to do. So it gives the mind at least yes. something. It feels like, well, to gnaw into, well, yes. I, I read that, that, that you said that, that worry at least, well, at least I'm doing something yes. like I'm worrying. So, you know, okay. If you get into, you know, Buddhist thinking and meditation, this notion of surrender and letting go, right. Um, it's another aversion, I think it's a, it's a, it's a more defined kind of laid out version of this conversation of letting go. Cause letting go seems hippy dippy. It seems like, Oh, I'm running in the fields, but it's, it, it's kind of like the person sitting in their house thinking that they're wearing their favorite Jersey is going to make their team win. what is worry really going to do. And I think you have a choice like in the scenario of being a parent where it is that kind of weird surrender because mm -hmm. you realize I, I sometimes, and this, I, I, I don't always love this. I often will go to the worst case scenario mm -hmm. and be like, there it is. Get on with it. You know what I mean? Like they can get in a car accident. This is what can happen. This, and then just say, okay, because sometimes it's like almost not facing it. And it's almost going, well, what are you really worrying about? I'm worrying about my kid getting killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Okay, there it is. That's it. That is the it. All right, let's, you got to move on. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a really uh, confusing sometimes place where you care so deeply and you have to let go all the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've seen, so I'm glad you bring up this idea of letting go because I've seen two main approaches to letting go. One is that Western willpower-based approach, like just let go, you know, just stop it. And the other is, you know, related to what you're talking about, is really seeing how futile it is to worry. So, yeah. you know, you can, you can turn, you know, it's like the only way out is through, right? Yeah. And so you can look at that head on and say, okay, here's the worst thing that can happen. And then you can ask, is my worrying going to affect the result regardless, right? So certainly we can plan and try to you know, give our kids tips and make sure that they're safe. We're going to do that anyway. Right. But then if we worry about that the whole night, that's not going to actually affect the result, but it is going to affect us. It's going to do two things. One, it's going to drain our energy. And two, it's going to feed those habit loops of worry, which can mm. even start to become addictive where people will say, Oh. You know, okay, I don't have to worry about this. And then their brain starts looking for something else to worry about. You know, I don't want anybody to go through life, but, you know, addicted to worrying. Yeah. So that's the key. One of the key pieces is to just really see, is this worry keeping my family members safe? Is it solving the problem? Is it doing this? And if we can see that it's not, it's much easier to let go of because our brain has become disenchanted with it. It's seeing, oh, this isn't really helping 
but we have to really experience that directly. We can't just think. And someone can't say it to you. It it has to be your own epiphany in your own vernacular, because I just think that's the only, it's like even having kids. It's like, oh, so they don't, they're not going to have to learn the hard way. How does any of us learn through our own way and realizing? So, okay, so they, they get the app, they kind of go through these, you know, questions, and then you get them to maybe identify some of the habit loops that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just, you know, for people to understand um, and, and, and also to talk about, I think, what is it, three or four steps to break a habit? Um, just because then it's almost an impulse, a habit, then it almost becomes like you're not in charge of it, mm-hmm. grooving these habit loops and things. Yeah, we're probably much less in charge than we think we are. <laughs> Everywhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here, what we do have some ability to do is to pay attention, right? And that awareness itself. So with this three-step process, the so first step is mapping out these habit loops. The second step is becoming disenchanted. We're seeing, oh, this isn't doing it for me. And then the third step is finding these BBOs, these bigger, better offers. All of those require awareness. And awareness is something that we are born with, right? We, we all can be aware and it can be fostered through curiosity, right? When we're truly curious about mm-hmm. something, which could be as simple as, oh, how does my mind work? Or, you know, what am I getting from this worry? Yeah. We're going to naturally pay attention more. So it, it's already built into the system. Do you ever worry about anything? Of course you do. You're human. But like, what gets you? Like what? I can tell you all the things that get me. But do you have something that you're just like, oh, and even if it's you, you'll probably have a great practice in, is there, is there areas of your life that you, you go, Oh, I stumble into worry just even for a second. Yeah. I, because I'm not a very good surfer, it's getting caught inside a set. That's just survival. And, and just getting multiple hold downs where it's like, am I going to be able to you know, get up in time and breathe? And so think, you mean prior to going, like when you're paddling out, you sort of think, I hope I don't get pounded. Uh, occasionally, or when I look, like go to a new spot mm. and I, I'm, I'm looking, okay, where, where do I not want to get caught? And are these waves just too big for me? Cause I'm not into like, I want to ride the biggest wave. Yeah. I'm into, I want to have fun and not die. Yeah. But this is the common sense. This is not worry. Okay. So. This for me, that's an assessment, mm. especially when you're doing something with an inherent risk. Okay. Um, is there anything maybe with your practice or something where you, you, it, it, you know, it sort of niggles at the back of your mind and you just haven't really, you know, for me, obviously it's, it's probably more my kids, but even in that, they, you know, I, I feel like if you do it long enough, you, you have to make choices yeah. at some point. It's like, you know, it's like having a friend that complains about their relationship. It's like either make it better or leave. Like I can't deal with it. And with, when you have kids at some point you have to be like, I'm, I can't worry my way through all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to embrace it and well, I've been focused and it's not like I never worry. I just can't think of something right now because I've, I've spent a lot of time in developing these programs. I've got to look at my own experience mm-hmm. because if I can't walk that walk, there's no way I can teach somebody else or help anybody else. So I'm trying to think my brain is not that excited to worry these days. Certainly, you know, yeah. doing risk assessment is important, but it's just such a drain to worry. <laughs> Yeah. I think my brain's just not that excited to do that these days. Your mom having four kids and being, a, you know, at least part of the time, a single mom, 
she probably wasn't a big worrier. She was probably so busy trying to survive. She didn't have time to worry. I don't think she had time to worry. She certainly did not demonstrate any worrying. <laughs> you know, like we'd hear a thing here or there where she might've been concerned where we were, you know, out too late or something like yeah. that. But it wasn't like she was constantly worrying and letting us know about it. And I think you're, you're right. She just didn't have time to do it. She had to focus on survival. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is, Sometimes I have, like, I feel like it becomes like a language within a home. Um, it becomes, and I often wonder like if it was a cellular download also. So I have a friend, Nancy, we always joke. She's like, you know, I'm your Jewish friend. I worry about everything. And then I wondered though, because, you know, typically I have a lot of friends in different ways and there are certain styles that you go, okay, was this the language in the house that was learned? And then you wonder like, or is there also some kind of download of worry because of their past history of the entire group? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I think we can see, so certainly their genetics play a role in a lot of these things, yeah. but we don't have control over our genes. So I don't focus a lot there. Right. right. But what you're talking about, I think is really important. We can see things passed down from, you know, grandparents to parents to kids, right? If the, if the grandparent worried and then the parent worried, the kid's more likely to just pick that up as a habit. But we also see this societally, you know, my wife um, comes from a Jewish family as well. Her mm-hmm. dad's side of the family is Jewish. And, it, you know, it's a joke in Jewish culture about, you know, about, oh, I'm, you know, this is my, my worry or we feel, you know, guilt or whatever. And it's not just, you know, they don't, the Jews don't have the corner on the market there. There's Catholic guilt. Yeah, of course. All these, all these religious uh, folks. So I think we can see these things passed down culturally as well, yeah. whether it's uh, a religious institution or just a cultural institution where, you know, we can learn as much from a culture or our enculturation as we can from our own parents. Yeah. That I always, you know, cause I, I kind of grew up freewheeling, so I didn't ha- I didn't really, le- I, I just didn't learn that that much. And, and, uh, I've noticed it with my own kids, like Larry will take them to go do something when they're, especially when they were really young. And I would be concerned but I thought, oh, I'm going to teach them that. So I'm going to I'm going to remove myself from the situation and let him take over because what he's showing them is, uh, you know, sort of safe adventure. Mm-hmm. And maybe the addition of me would have been like, oh, is that okay? Mm-hmm. I oftentimes peel myself out of situations that I know my kids will have more freedom and fun mm-hmm. um, in a calculated risk environment. Because the mother thing will either take over and it'll be like, okay, slow down or whatever impulse comes out. And so it's a, it's an interesting thing. I had it yesterday. I had a, well, I have a, Luca is a 19 year old staying with us. He's a big wave rider from Half Moon Bay. And I was going to take the kids and they were going to slide on behind on boogie boards. And he's like, you want me to take them? And, and the kids are like, oh, absolutely. It's going to be way more fun. And I was like, absolutely. Gotta let go. You gotta let go. (laughs) But you're highlighting something that even goes back to our our survival brains. You know, our our brains are, you know, designed to help us, you know, find safe places and know that we can let our guard down in those safe places so that we can rest and recuperate. And then when we venture out of that, you know, the proverbial cave, right? When we Mm -hmm. venture out of a cave, our brain goes on high alert that says, oh, you know, this is an uncharted part of the savannah. Is there danger here? Mm -hmm. And as we go and chart that, that high alert helps us learn so we can learn, oh, this part's safe, this part's dangerous, so that we can actually become familiar and comfortable with that. So that's actually moving from an evolutionary perspective. That's moving into our growth zone. 
where we're growing. You know, mm-hmm. Carol Dweck describes this in terms of fixed versus growth mindset. But if we keep the kids in the cave all the time and say, don't go out, it's dangerous, don't go out, it's dangerous, when they go out, they're going to learn to, instead of going to their growth zone, they're going to go into their panic zone because mom said, oh, it's dangerous, or dad said it's dangerous, run back into the cave. Mm-hmm. Well, we can't live our lives that way. That mm-hmm. is not sustainable. Yet, I would say there's a lot in society that's actually helping us stay in these comfort zones, you know, even in mm-hmm. colleges where they have this whole, this whole fantasy about safe places. You know, if, it, <laughs> if somebody disagreed with a student, you know, they could run literally some of these colleges had like a room where it was all soft cushions and milk and cookies. You know, I thought the whole point of college was to, to learn how to, you know, agree to disagree and have debates and grow that way. Right. Well, if, if we're teaching our kids, oh, you know, go to college, have fun, but don't don't go out of your comfort zone. Well, we're doing a huge disservice for yeah. them and for society because they're going to teach their kids to stay in the you know safe zone as well. Yeah, and then anytime anything isn't exactly what you believe, which is never, by the way, <laughs> just get into entangled with one other human being. Um, you're always going to be uncomfortable. Um, I know I love that. Who was it was talking about that? Maybe Jordan Peterson was talking about like, it was the first time that this group, this generation was protesting to not have people come and talk at the universities because it was too radical. And usually it was supposed to be the other way. Isn't that crazy? It is. You know, I've had a thought that it's a new world. It's a different world. And I'm old enough now where, you know, you maybe five years ago, I was like, when did I get out of touch? But that used as I started realizing as I was like, oh, and also maybe these are the new people that live in the new world. Because mm-hmm. my old self and brain would be like, well, it, it should be like this and they need to do that and they should t- tough it out and all these things. And then you think, well, maybe who knows? I don't know what the way it's moving. Are these the new people in the new world? But I don't know how we're all going to agree um, to every. We cannot all agree about everything. And I can be tons, I can be friends with a ton of people that um, we agree on a lot of the same issues, but not every single one. Yeah, I don't think people have suddenly changed. But I think one thing that we're allowing ourselves to do is to be sucked along through technology. You know, this whole, not that technology is bad, but if we look at social media, for example, where their job is to get our attention and keep it. You know, this. Oh yeah, that's the real estate, right? Right. So that's the real estate. If they're trying to sell real estate and they don't, and they just set it up to an algorithm and it's agnostic. Well, radicalization is the way to keep. You know, slow radicalization is the way to keep people's attention. And so these you know, these machine learning algorithms are driving us in these directions. It doesn't even matter what side. They just want us to get radicalized. Well, that radicalization helps us. It's basically keeping us more and more in these safe spaces because we're only interacting with people that agree with us. We're only seeing material that that reinforces what we think. Right. That's just staying in our safe space. So this isn't about people's brains suddenly changing. It's about our old brains not being able to keep up with this very smart technology. Mm. And, and the nice thing is... It's really about being aware of how this process works, how our brains work. It's not complex. It's just seeing, oh, am I out of my element? Am I out of my comfort zone? And can I lean into that right. rather than run away? Right. I, I, I interviewed a woman named Kristen Ulmer, and she talked about fear. And it was really about having that ability not only to look at it, um, but she, she had an interesting point about if you have a kid and you go like, oh, we're going to the water park and... Uh, it's scary. And the kid goes, um, it's, 
hey, I'm scared. And it isn't for us to say, don't be scared. Um, she said, it's meant to be scary. And are you in the mood to be scared? And sometimes if you, you know, like, cause she's like, you're not supposed to be, want to be scared all the time, but you're supposed, you're not supposed to not ever want to be scared. And I think that that's like a sort of important uh, distinction is just, you know, looking at, um, I think it's important to lean into the things that you're like, Ooh, this is unchartered. And this idea makes me uncomfortable. And it's really different than what I think or believe. And, you know, let me see, let me see what it's about. Well, and here, I, I think what you're, if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's kind of, instead of going, Oh no, <laughs> going, Oh, yeah. And in fact, here's where we can hack our brains because, Oh, feels much better than, Oh no. Yeah. If we can get over that hump of, Oh no, that's scary. Oh, you know, can we, can we actually lean into that? Can we use that mm-hmm. curiosity to get over that hump to say, Oh, here's something different. Everybody loves to learn. So instead yeah. of saying, Oh, I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to try something new saying, Oh, this is a little scary. That's cool. Yeah. You know, assuming that it's not dangerous, you know, terribly dangerous, but it's like, Oh, this is out of the comfort zone. And that, Oh, can be mm-hmm. enough to push us over that, that hump to actually go do it. And I feel like when you do that, <laughs> more often it does get easier. Mm-hmm. Just like I had, I was thinking the other day, I had this incident where, um, I was working and the people, uh, that came to work, they, they sort of had a real oversight. Uh, it, it was a decent oversight and I wasn't happy, but I wasn't, I didn't get angry, but I was like, okay, here's the boundary. We're wrapping it up. We're good. But what I told one of my daughters is, is then the next step for me was I needed to take responsibility too, because I realized that I hadn't gone over the procedures. Mm -hmm. And so there's an interesting thing that occurs when you get to practice, not walling up and pushing against anything. Mm -hmm. And that when you sort of go, well, all right, what could I, could I have done something different here? Um, better. Could I have participated? Could I responded differently? And I think it, it does get easier, um, you know, on some level, I think you make a decision though. I think when you cruise through life, I don't know what the age is, but I think you either go left or right. Mm-hmm. I think you either say, okay, you know what? I'm here to stay open and to learn and see, or you just wall up and you go, this is how it is. And, uh, I don't know if you even realized when you were saying that your eyes were getting more open when you were talking about the, Oh, you know, here we, oh. need, to, we need to set these boundaries <laughs> or whatever and move on. So it sounds like you've really, it seems like you've really internalized that, you know, in moving in the direction of curiosity and learning. And oh, I yeah. think, you know, one thing that to me, it seems like you're highlighting is we can try to wall off, whether it's like, I'm never going to try anything new or I've got to be perfect or I'm not going to try it, which nobody is ever perfect. Or we can move in this direction. <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, I didn't think about this instead of beating ourselves up saying, yeah. Oh, why should, why didn't I think about this? Going, yeah. Okay. What do we need to do right now? Because that's actually the best survival strategy in the moment. Anyway, it's like, Oh, why didn't I think about looking both ways before crossing? This? <laughs> yeah. Know, as we get hit by the car. Yeah. It's Oh, car. Move. move. Out of the way. Yeah. Adaptability. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's everything, right? We talk about that flexibility and fitness and in eating and, you know, metabolic flexibility and all of that. So if you can just sort of go over, you know, people, how people can tap into the natural reward system that you talk about, because when you talk about a bigger, better offer, I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. It's just, what do we, you know, everyone thinks it's so different, but is it, you know, is it ever diff- different than, you know, carrots and s- sticks? It just isn't. 
Well, so I think there are a couple of things to highlight here. One is it's not just carrots and sticks, right? Like, oh, I'd rather (laughs) eat ice cream than broccoli, right? So our brain can be like, well, ice cream tastes better than broccoli. We can't just eat ice cream our whole lives because we don't feel so good afterwards. So there's a piece where we can look to see what type of bigger, better offer am I going for? Is it a quick fix? Like I'm eating ice cream because I'm bored or sad or lonely Or is it something that I can actually tap into that doesn't become habituated? So, for example, if we're bored and we go on Instagram and we look at cute pictures of puppies, our brain says, you know, eventually gets habituated and says, okay, I need cuter puppies. Then it's like, okay, I need puppies and kittens. I need puppies, kittens, and babies. You know, it just goes on and on and on because that's what our brains do. They habituate so we can learn new things. Right. So it's not just about finding a bigger, better offer. You know, it's like, oh, my spouse, you know, we got in a fight, so I'm going to go find somebody else. Right? Yeah, know? no. That's it's not, it's, that, that does not end, that does not work out. And right. That leaves somebody always wanting the rest of their life. Mm. So the BBOs that I'm talking about are ones that are intrinsically available and have a particular characteristic. So my lab did a study with hundreds of people where we mapped out basically the reward valuation territory, the reward hierarchy of different mental states. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems like a no brainer, but you have to do the science to prove it. So if you look at anger, if you look at frustration, anxiety, all of these are less rewarding. People would prefer these less than kindness, curiosity, uh, connection, right? So mm-hmm. duh, makes mm-hmm. sense. Right. But if you look at another characteristic, there's a shared characteristic of these two groups. One feels closed down, wound up, contracted. The other feels opened up. So if we can find two things. One is see how painful it is to be wound up, to hold on to things that we can't hold on to, to get wound up in anxiety. If we see how painful that is, that helps us already start to let go because we become disenchanted. But if we can also see how much more rewarding it is, say, if we're beating ourselves up versus being kind to ourselves, that kindness opens us up. Even just remembering or thinking of the kindness of others can help open us up so we can tap into that kindness. Curiosity is a great anxiety buster because you can't be closed and open at the same time. So if you're closed in in anxiety, you can get curious. Oh, what does it feel like to be closed? And that, oh, is already opening us up. I feel like we do that with kids all the time. It's such a, you know, like, oh, I look at the, you know, and the kid's like, oh, wow. I can't help but think when you talk about this, though, and... I'm going to just speak from personal experience that sometimes the closed also seems for me personally, it's always more connected to my ego. And, and when I say that it's because when I want to be angry and I want to show everyone how tough I am or I want to be versus like, I want to be kind and open and loving. It's like also having that conversation with myself about what is to your point, what is the result you're looking for? Because one is an impulse, but it's also like, yeah, I don't care. You yeah. know, it's like an ego. I don't know. It's, oh, I think you're, you're touching on something that my lab has actually studied neuroscientifically. So okay. there's this, uh, we, geez, 10 years ago now, we were studying experienced meditators and we wanted to see what was different in their brains when mm-hmm. they were meditating versus novice meditators. I was so naive when I was doing this research. And so when we so we did this study where we looked at you know very advanced meditators, naive uh, or novice meditators that we just taught to meditate, and we scanned their brains 
across a diff three different types of meditations. So we weren't looking just for a particular type. We wanted to see what was common. And first I was thinking, there's got to be something activating in the brain because I feel like I'm working pretty hard when I'm meditating. This right. is before I actually really realized what meditation was all about. Yeah. We didn't find anything that was increased in activity, but we actually found a network of brain regions that was decreased in activity and experienced meditators. And this is a self-referential network. It's about me, right? right? And when we looked even more carefully, we could actually do these neural feedback studies where we could give people feedback from their brains in real time so where we could link up their subjective experience with their brain activity. We even got Anderson Cooper to try it on camera for 60 mm -hmm. minutes, which was I cool. actually saw that. Yeah, it was really neat. So the idea is when we get caught up in something egoic, like I'm anxious, for yeah. example. So we, we had Cooper think of a time when he was anxious and this, this network went off the, off the charts. It like went off our scale. Yeah. And then we had him just focus on meditating on the present moment on his breath, something that wasn't about him, just about his physical sensations. And you could watch this brain activity go and just, just take tank. Mm -hmm. And so the idea there is, you know, this, these studies that we've done have suggested that it's about getting caught up, you know, that, and that quality of getting caught up says, this is me, the rest of the world out here. And the best part about that is it lines up beautifully with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's concept of flow, right? He talks right. about flow being selfless. So we had somebody in our scanner doing a neurofeedback study and she reported right after, cause you, we measure their brain activity and right afterwards we asked them to report, you know, what was this, what was this? And so they can line it up in, you know, what, what, with what was actually happening. And she, we watched her default one network get really quiet. And I said, what happened there? And she said, I was in flow. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, you know, she, and we didn't even mention the word flow. And so here, if you think about flow, when we lose that sense of self where that boundary, that, that contraction gets so weak and so wide where we lose where we end and the rest of the world begins, mm -hmm. we're in flow. Yeah. And so you can even think of this network, this egoic network is saying, this is me. And, oh, this is, you know, this is just stuff happening with awareness of stuff happening. It's not about me. Yeah. The more we do that, the more we can actually get into the flow of things. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, when you live long enough and you are trying to pay attention, it's like, oh, well, really did they, I, uh, I interviewed Stephen Kotler. I've known Stephen a very long time. He talks a lot about flow. He does. And, um, he said, the interesting thing is everything's always different, but the one thing scientifically is flow is always the same. And he interviewed Laird, I don't know, 15 years ago. And he said he thought Laird was a, you know, total, he didn't know what he was talking about. That Laird said, um, the thing about flow is it is, and you are, and it's always the same. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what does that mean? And he's like, then I understood <laughs> years later. I was like, yeah, I guess so. It is a, it's, it's an interesting, um, I've, I've obviously experienced it a few times in athletics, but through having a breathing practice and, you know, there's people who can meditate. I really like having a breathing practice because it almost distracts my busy mind. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, 30 breaths and in and out. And it's, it almost gets me outside of myself. I have to trick myself to do that. The people who learn how to meditate because people don't realize that it is a real skill mm -hmm. to to meditate. So I use the breathing and there'd be days you're on the floor and you're like, I think I'm a puddle. Am I breathing? Have I inhaled? Have I exhaled? Like you really, the, that idea of that expansiveness. Okay. So we're going to get you surfing soon. If this rain would stop it, you know, if someone is listening to this and you know, the eating and the, and certainly the anxiety, which is, it's so big. And, and right now with, with COVID, like you said, this unknown, 
and, and not a reference of what's happened before in this. We haven't been here quite like this. Um, you know, how would you encourage people, you know, sort of just a few steps, because I think we all have versions of it. I don't care. I don't care who we are. And some people maybe are a little further down the path than others, but I, I just think even in a daily practice, these tools are, are really, really valuable. So if someone's sitting there and they're like, and, and somehow I think sometimes people feel afraid to say, you know, I'm wrestling with this and I, I'm, you know, mulling it over. How would you, you know, direct them to kind of start the process of unwinding their anxiety? The first step would be just helping them understand how their minds work. And I think everybody has a little bit of, at least a little bit of curiosity about how their minds work, especially if they're anxious, there's a driving force behind really figuring out what this Mm -hmm. is. And it's really not about figuring out why am I anxious, but what is happening right now Mm -hmm. that where I'm stuck in an anxiety habit loop and just mapping it out. Like I mentioned with my patient, you know, what's triggering it. Don't worry so much about the triggers, but really focus on what's the behavior. Is it worrying? Is it procrastinating? Is it distracting? Is it eating? Is it whatever? And then focus on that cause and effect relationship. This goes back to these Buddhist principles, right? Cause and effect. If I'm worrying, what's the result of worrying? It typically ends up something like, well, I'm getting more anxious and and I can't sleep and I'm depleted of energy and all these things. So there, if we can just have somebody, so step one, map it out. Step two, ask, what am I getting from this? Right. right. Not intellectually, but really feel into your direct experience. That's step two. Help us see how unrewarding these old behaviors are. And then step three is to bring in this bigger, better offer, which is to simply get curious about our experience. Or if we're judging ourselves, be kind to ourselves. And one thing that I have folks focus on, if they're just beginning to meditate or just beginning to do any type of awareness practice, is to see, you know, that cause and effect relationship is the result a contracting, a wound up quality of experience, mm-hmm. or is that result opening? And just pay attention to the result. It's not about saying, oh, I should do more things that open me and I should do fewer things that close me. It's about saying, oh, what do I get when I do this that closes me down? Oh, it's painful. Mm-hmm. What do I get when I do this that opens me up? Oh, mm. it feels pretty darn good. Yeah. And in that way, we can kind of train ourselves in the direction. Think of flow as this, you know, yeah. you know, completely boundless. We can always be training ourselves in that direction in any one moment. But at any time we say, I want to be in flow, we're, <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's sort of like anything, you know, what is that, that in which we resist persists. I feel like anytime we're attacking anything in that way, it just, I don't know. It just, it, it not only doesn't work, but then we're beating up, our, beating ourselves up and it's all these things. And when they, and people, you know, it sounds woo woo, but this notion of love or kindness and openness, the boundlessness of that. Um, I always tell people, if you really want to be a badass, like that is like the most, you know, cause I think sometimes we, we think of like strength and power as this sort of hard force versus this open, you know, abundance. And, um, I mean, nature is a great example of that, I think. Uh, okay. So the book and the app, they have the same name, Unwind Your Anxiety? Unwinding Anxiety. Okay. And, you know, the thing I love about books like this is they can be used really as a workbook. Mm-hmm. People can go back and back again. They can look at it. They can share it with other people. I think it's really important to have books like this. And the other thing I really appreciate about this is for me, you're bridging between two worlds. Because you're saying, hey, we have science and data and I have all the degrees. 
but you yourself in your own practice of your self-care and the fact that you're meditating all of that, I feel like I see a lot more practices in that moving in that direction. And it, it just feels like it's the only way we're really going to get out of this. I just have one last question and it's random and it just came to me. Food, engineered food, you know, hits the palate hard, leaves quick, right? Stronger than anything in nature. You know, people, they're navigating that too. Do you think that if we can sort of deal with these other sides of, you know, why we're using the food that we can get out of that? I've been eating a Dorito in a really long time, but... Absolutely. I like that you use the Dorito as an example. Well, because it's the one, right? Well, my, my favorite peer-reviewed journal, The Onion, <laughs> did, they have this headline that says, Dorito celebrates its one millionth ingredient. <laughs> oh, geez. I'm just saying, like, I never, I, I haven't eaten a Dorito. Of course, I ate them as a kid. Yeah. But you eat it and you think, oh, I understand why people eat bags and bags of this. Yeah. So we can use the same awareness to help us step out of those. For me, my Doritos was gummy worms. Like I couldn't have a bag in the house because I would eat the whole thing. And then I started paying attention and I realized, ooh, these taste like petroleum, you know? And then I would compare them to blueberries. And I was like, wow, there is a bigger, better offer. Our bodies know best yeah. in terms of taste, in terms of sweetness, in terms of not just like eat one and then need to eat another one yeah. versus eat something. It tastes good. And then we get satisfied. We've had mm -hmm. enough. Yeah. It feels much better to not be addicted to eating the whole bag as compared to, you know, just shoveling it down oh, yeah. because we're, we have this drive <laughs> to consume. So yes, awareness can help. With I love when I'm in those moods. You ever stand outside yourself and you're in one of those moods and you're shoving something in your mouth and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to punish myself all the way right now. Like I know ahead because, you know, have enough of a relationship with it, but you're just like, I'm going down with this. It's <laughs> like, you know. Well, that's where we can even bow to those situations. Oh. I think of it as like everything, we can learn from everything. It's like, Don't. I'm going in. And so afterwards we can, you know, when the dust settles, oh, like, what was that like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually it's weird. Those moments for me are really good. Like, okay, it's time to like get, figure out what's going on and like unearth it. And if it's that you have, you feel too stressed out or you have some, you're feeling unsettled about a kid or whatever it is, it is like, it's like the ultimate, you know, red flag, like, all right, you sat in the car and you ate the whole bag. It's not like I would tell anyone. I can tell you now because it's after the fact. I wouldn't get out and be like, hey, Larry, sweetie, guess what? Just huff down a whole bag of whatever. It's like you keep that stuff to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Joel, do we think there's waves for, for uh, Dr. Brewer? Only well, we a little chocolatey maybe today, but... I, I, can honest, I can honestly say to Judson, I've never met somebody with your first name. It's an unusual one. I've never, I've met a lot of people. It's, is it a family name? No, my mom came up with it. She's a good one. Your mom sounds like she's cool. <laughs> she's a bad <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Brewer, thank you for your time. And uh, everyone, I'll put it where everyone can find you and right. find all the tools that you have been really diligently providing. I think it's, it's just really important. And I, for me, I just, I feel like we have to demystify all these conversations and not make people feel bad about anything and just say, okay, let's stop feeling bad about things or anxious about things. What can we do? Um, because you know, we're not supposed to know, but we are, it is a good idea to get involved and try to learn to improve it. It is. And it's actually fun to learn. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. 
All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.